Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon at the uh, end of a wonderful campaign from the Australians in the UAE winning their one-day series 5-0 against Pakistan. That's eight wins on the bounce, Jeff, but uh, we'll talk plenty about that and we'll also discuss any number of different issues around the cricketing world. And at the back of the show, we're thrilled to say that we are releasing our interview with Will Anderson, a mighty comedian on the Australian scene for many, many years, a a cricket tragic, and and it was a wonderful chat, Jeff. At the end of which he apologised for not being funnier because we got so caught up in talking about cricket. That's the last hour of the show, so if, if you're here for that, you know where to find it. But there are a lot of other topics we need to cover. We also have a massive round of Nerd Pledge, which is the new game that we're playing on The Final Word, where people on the Patreon account try to stump us by signing up with random numbers and see if we can figure out what they are. So we've had a ton of those come in. We got to our 100 supporter mark on the Patreon page during the last week, so raise the bat to the crowd. Thanks to everyone for jumping on that. And uh, we've got about as many talking points to get through in the intro to this show before we get to Will. Yeah, that's right. But we will indulge in, in a little bit of Maxwell chat off the top, Jeff, as is our custom. As is only right. As is only right. It'd be wrong for us not to. Well, they defended 266, 277 and 327 since we last spoke to win that series. As I mentioned, 5-0. Maxwell was influential. I must say... Personally, I'm relieved. I feel as though there was always going to be one player drop out of that squad to make room for Steve Smith, possibly two, depending on how they, they, they structure the side up for the final World Cup squad of 15. But Maxwell needed runs and, uh, and, and he got them. He also did 
the kind of job that Justin Langer wanted him to do in that he floated, he came in at different points, he batted at first drop, he batted at four, he batted at six, depending mm. where he was needed, and he had two matches where he came in without much time left and smashed a quick 70 in both of those games, but he also had the game where he came in at four for 100 and when they had most of the innings left to bat and, and he had to knuckle down and make sure that he was there towards the end, and he was, he was run out in the last over for 98 and indicative of the kind of way he goes about his cricket that he wasn't carefully trying to get to 100 he was uh, belting back for a, a second just trying to look for as many runs as possible for the team which is why he's got out in the 90s quite a few times before and after all it's been said uh, over the last or oh, how long has Justin Langer been coached for well, nine months now uh, about Maxwell he um, he compared him to Virat Kohli which uh, I didn't expect maybe a slight overstatement you might say <laughs> uh, on their records but I think the point Langer was trying to make was, it, was he needs to try to be the Virat Kohli of the Australian team in terms of being consistent, in terms of making big numbers, but doing it repeatedly. And interestingly, Langer even mentioned, volunteered the idea of Maxwell, the test player, saying that you know they'd seen his destructiveness in the short form, they'd seen responsibility in the middle form, and that that was all part of the build-up for him for trying to think of himself as a test player as well into the future. So an interesting little flag there from the Australian coach, whose, whose relationship is improving with his mercurial <laughs> batsman. Aaron Finch made 451 runs in the series at 113. So welcome back to form there. Indeed, it's the most amount of runs anyone's ever made in a five-game, one-day international series. And when you consider how many of those there have been over the last, say, 20 years in particular, that's a pretty serious piece of history, if you ask me. Um, Usman Khawaja, 272 runs. Maxwell, the aforementioned, 258. So, And, of course, Sean Marsh making a, a couple of contributions as well through the series. So that, that squeeze continues. And then the bowling. We haven't spent much time the last couple of weeks talking about bowling as this uh, one-day renaissance has started, so to speak. But uh, Nathan Coulton-Isle, who was outside of the squad, back in, played three games, took seven wickets, went at about a run of ball. Nathan Lyon went at five and over. Adam Zampa took seven wickets and, again, comfortably under a run of ball in terms of runs conceded. Josh Hazelwood isn't in this side right now. Mitchell Stark will come back. Pat Cummins went home prematurely. Obviously, he needed a breather. And Glenn Maxwell, with the ball, he got through a stack of overs, again, comfortably under a run of ball. So they've got plenty of options in terms of who they throw the ball around to. And they've got a bit of a selection quandary for the quicks because Coulton Isle, you go back 18 months to when they toured India in late 2017, he was comfortably Australia's best bowler there. And that's not even considering Jason Berendorf, who's only played a few one-day internationals, but has done pretty much nothing wrong. Well, Jai Richardson, with that shoulder injury, he's expected to come back. It's not too bad. So, yeah, Coulton Isle's one of those ones where he's always there and thereabouts and gets selected, but he's never first in. And he's done so little wrong any time he's had the opportunity. And with the bat as well, when the Australian white ball teams were struggling last year, he was often the one coming in down the order and making valuable runs at the same time. So... Nathan Coulton Isles had maybe a, a bit of a stiff run. He's not seen as a star in the same sort of way, but hasn't quite had the opportunity to prove it at times. So they get Warner and Smith back into the mix shortly, Jeff, and David Warner, blimey. It was, it was always going to be this way, wasn't it? The, uh, the, the return to the IPL after missing last year with the, the Sunrisers Hyderabad for obvious reasons and a spectacular start with the blade, that brilliant 
record-breaking partnership with Johnny Bairstow, which in itself is hilarious given all that went down a couple of years ago at the Gabba. What, what, a, what, a, what a strange world the IPL has created for yeah. us. Water and Bairstow. Friends. And, uh, not the best of cricketing friends once. Best friends now. Big Big cuddles every time they they what they put on three century stands in a row. They both got the, those amazing Ranga beards, the sort of glowing <laughs> ginger beards. And when the two of them meet, you know, it's like a it's like a fusion in Steven Universe or something. They ju- they just merge into one being, one batsman, one body, um, clouting sixes all over the place. It's a beautiful, strange, mixed up, bizarro timeline that we're in cricket wise. Even if the timeline's not so great in terms of things like Elon Musk releases a single about Harambe, the group. Yeah, yeah I, I listened to it, all the, the auto-tune all the way through it. I don't know how I got through two and a half minutes of that, but, but I did. Jeff, there was a Fairfax report on, I think it was Thursday last week, that the bowling group uh, made uh, representations to decision-makers at Cricket Australia saying that if Warner were to play that fourth test at Johannesburg last year, they wouldn't play. So that, that includes Hazelwood, Stark, Cummins and Lyon. Two and a half days after that story, there was a, a statement put out by Cricket Australia, which I've seen plenty of statements rejecting stories before, don't get me wrong. In my former life, we were constantly putting out statements saying stories were wrong, but I've never seen one go out two and a half days after the fact, so I found that quite interesting. But um, certainly Fairfax, or the the artists formerly known as Fairfax, the nine entertainment group, have stood behind uh, their story, uh, and the fast bowlers have said that it was wrong. So, But all the same, right in the thick of it, as ever, is David Warner. So what do you make of that? Like, how, How does that happen, or what does that mean when it takes that much time to come up with a response so it was was that because they would have had to go past all of the players in question and get them to agree to sign up to the statement or? oh look it's hard to know i guess they're all in different countries which might have some influence i'm sure that'll be the reason given if we interrogated it but if the story's wrong the practice is to put a statement out you know by seven o'clock in the morning so that the coverage of the newspaper story is influenced by your rejection of it so when it gets picked up on radio and picked up on television and these days picked up via twitter and so forth that the the first line would be you know assertion made the second line is rejected by kind of goes back to your point jeff from last week and i know you've written an article about this as well is that if there was more of a disclosure at the time about what went down if we knew more about the situation uh, in Cape Town last year. I, I don't think there'd be as much interest in this kind of thing, but there is a thirst for knowledge on the basis that the, the, the vacuum remains. We still don't really know what happened. Yeah, and there's still fudging going on. There's still a, an unwillingness to come out and, and say what happened. And, you know, of course, if it happened now, there'd be a whole lot of extra stuff stirred up. But if it had happened, say, 11 months ago, that might have been a good bit of timing on their part. But there might be another bowler joining that group coming into the middle of the year you mm. would you would have been frothing over the last few days watching the performances of james pattinson <laughs> in the sheffield shield final i'm gonna bet yeah i was i mean i think the the bit i mean obviously that first spell if you get a chance to click on it wasn't on twitter but i, I did tweet out the link to one of the facebook pages i don't know which one it was but someone did a compilation of all the balls that pattinson bowled in his first spell not just the the, the balls that, that took wickets there was a couple in there but the other deliveries and it was just an unplayable, electrifying spell of legitimately fast bowling with a huge degree of movement and swing involved as well. The fact that he's going through the gate with his off-cutter and still moving the ball away, it's just a sight to behold at that kind of pace, as is the, the wicket celebration, uh, Jeff. The uh, the way that Pattinson um, 
goes about it after taking a big scalp. Um, I just want that to be my, my screensaver or something like that, the way oh, maybe I can make it so in the modern era I could probably make a GIF for screensaver. He also just seems more physically enormous than he did previously as well. I, I think our mm. colleague, Vadishan Hataraja, described him as a tank of a bowler, and he kind of is. Like, his torso seems incredibly dense it's about as as deep as it is wide but um it's all angry bowling muscle i think it's fair to say if pattinson gets through his spell with knots unfortunately he's not playing the first couple of rounds he's taking a couple of weeks off so he'll be playing a whole series of white ball games before he starts in the red ball stuff but hopefully uh, he stays in, in the first division of the county championship and gets that chance to, to stick it out before you know, getting drafted in for edgebaston but that's by the way i should add that the first game that he does play for nottinghamshire is against Lancashire in a one-day fixture against Glenn Maxwell at, um, at Old Trafford. So um, you can be fairly sure that I'll be there covering that one way or the other. I'm definitely going to Manchester to watch Pattinson versus Maxwell. It's all my dreams come true. Uh, but uh, no, the, 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 the way that he might balance out the attack, you know, Pattinson, Cummins, Stark, Hazelwood, we've been saying for a long time, Jeff, that it'd just be a sight to behold if the four of those Australian quicks were all playing in the same 11 and try and blast out England. Because if they do put it together, it'll be quite quite the scene the four by 100 men's relay team yeah, playing electric guitars smashing like guitars <laughs> that's right I'm, I'm not sure. who is the gary hall jr of the english test team <laughs> so the sheffield shield final not just notable for pattinson's bowling but that victorian domestic cricket machine plowing on uh, another title six titles for cameron white for instance yeah you think about the the cameron white career arc is Almost reflective of Victoria's fortunes, he debuted in the summer of 2000, 2001, late in that summer. In fact, I remember his first wicket. It was Michael Bevan with a wrongen when he was mostly used as a leg spinner when he was a 17-year-old or something like that. But, you know, Victoria had gone a decade without a shield at that stage, the previous one having been secured in 1990, uh, that summer there under the leadership of Simon O'Donnell. And then you look at the way that he's been able to play in so many finals, won it six times. Look, there's a decent chance he'll never play for Victoria again. He certainly hinted on radio that it's unclear whether he'll be retained. The Melbourne Renegades have all but said that he'll be released, so he'll have to play Big Bash somewhere else next year. But yes, what a, what a fine career. Always making a contribution, uh, a fine captain of his state as well. So well played. Cameron White, the Victoria machine, as you say, continues to power on. I don't know how they do it. They've got an incredible fast bowling lineup. The fact that, you know, Scott Boland, James Pattinson and Peter Siddle uh, all alongside Chris Tremaine have taken an, an amazing amount of wickets this season together as a quartet. And then the batting's so deep. Marcus Harris made 141 in the first innings to complete just about the perfect Sheffield Shield season for him alongside six test matches as well. Jeff, any debate as to his position in the touring party would have just about been sewn up with that. We, we said last week that Shield finals in Ashes years tend to have a greater weighting when it comes to selection and that should mean that even though Harris ended the international summer poorly, that there's no real doubting his primacy at the top of the order alongside Warner. You just have to pick him. You know, I mentioned a few misgivings last week, just in just more sort of hunch things about the way he goes about his game and I suppose the fact that he's a similar type of player and, and approach to Warner. But at some point, if you put up the numbers, you have to be rewarded and there's no way you can miss out on, on starting in that first test after making... You know, 1,100 in a season when there have been so few batsmen over the last 10, 15 years putting up those sort of numbers in the shield. Now, Adam, we also have an announcement to make, which is that with the World Cup coming up, we are going to launch the final word, World Cup Daily. It's going to be a short, bite-sized daily podcast through the tournament. 
if you're signed up as a subscriber, don't worry. It's not like you're going to be charged for a daily podcast. That'll be the once a week longer version as per usual. But in between times, as a bonus, we're going to do these bite-sized pods every day. There'll be one to two matches every day through the World Cup. And so after those games, we're going to try to give you a a bit of a sense of the day, wherever it is that we've been around the country and uh, catch you up on the action in those games. So it'll work out particularly well, we think, for Australian time zones because we'll record in the evening UK time and put it out which means that when you wake up in the morning after a game that's finished at 4am or whatever it is, on your way to work, you'll be able to catch up with all of the action from England the night before. It'll be out evening UK time and probably late afternoon, early evening in Asia for those listening around that part of the world. So it's going to be a lot of fun. It's 46 days, I think, back to back to back to back. So it's going to be an adrenaline-soaked process, but uh, we're looking forward to the challenge. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun just to add to that. We definitely will still do the weekly final word, uh, which will be the, the, the interview-based show that you've become familiar with over the last four or five years. And Jeff, uh, of course, our partner all the way through this project from the very, very start has been Kookaburra Cricket, and it's coming towards the end of the Australian summer. But kookaburra.biz, joining Team Kookaburra, you can continue to win plenty of kit through the England summer and you can join uh, many fantastic cricketers who are already part of Team Kookaburra. Well, that's right, Marcus Harris. Uh, so we just spoke about smashed the match-winning 100 in the Sheffield Shield final with the Kookaburra Ghost, the ghost of Sheffield Shield finals past. Marcus Harris has haunted many a Sheffield Shield final and many a bowler's dreams, uh, perhaps. That's his third ton in Shield finals, remarkably. That, that's, a, yeah. that's quite the stat. Glenn Maxwell's been belting all those runs in the UAE with the Blaze. And uh, Nathan Lyon hasn't had much of a chance for a hit with the Ghost, but Peter Hanscom has been doing his bit with the Surge, the Sergio Silvani as well, over there in the UAE, and uh, of course making his maiden ton in India a couple of weeks ago. There you go. That's a long way of saying. Get involved, kookaburra.biz. And Jeff, if you are, are enjoying the podcast, uh, and this is the, the time for us to tap into what's been a, a very enjoyable week on social media. Our Patreon subscribers have been... Absolutely outstanding. Uh, the floor is yours. Well, we've raised the ton. This is on the Patreon page where people can get behind the podcast with a bit of financial support to help us keep the lights on and keep things going. So we've had 26 people sign up in the last week, which is amazing uh, on its own, but also a lot of people getting involved in the accidental game of Nerd Pledge, which is where you try to stump us with uh, a number. It all it all started with a classic Richie Benno pledge of $2.22, and, and it's gone from there. But i Briefly, just want to say thanks to the people who've signed up. So Angus Ferguson, Andrew Gigach, Troy Smith, the non-second-named Duncan, Ethan Morgan, Daniel Levin, Schmicko. I don't know who Schmicko is or what Schmicko is about, but I like the sound <laughs> of Schmicko. I don't know what Schmicko's up to, but thanks for getting involved. Uh, Patrick Rogers, and then with some generous donations, some people who've, who've decided to up the ante, Steve Baker, Jane Fry, who's a very busy member of the Twitter community as well, who we chat with often on there, you, Owen Sheehan, Ray McGill, and Lachlan Quinn have all come through with pledges, so thank, thank you very you, much Quinny. to you guys. An old teammate of mine, Lachlan but Quinn, good on you, mate. There we go. Got a few former teammates coming through, but then we get to the nerd pledge. Now, initially, this was one or two people doing this, but it, it is now in vogue. Everybody's in on it. We've got about... 15 of these and about <laughs> half of them have me stumped so all right let's to, do it let's have a crack to start off with someone who i think you might be familiar with niren oh. clunas <laughs> has come through with two dollars 28 Hang on. no okay <laughs> okay I, I think i know who this might be and i don't think it's the 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 uh, the dalwich hamlet number seven the great niren clunas the king of camberwell 
amazing if it was, uh, but I'm, I'm going to take... Nairon Clunas, this is, this is uh, Adam's <laughs> local um, semi-pro football team. He's played 275 games for Delich Hamlet, uh, mostly off the wing, as I understand it. But mm. Yeah, I've been trying to find the Nairon Clunas 100 goals t-shirt for a while now. It's no longer sold in the shipping crate that we use as a, as a merchandise store at the club, the pink and blues. Um, but, well, I, I'm, I'm going to take a punt that who Nairon Clunas really is, is, is the young Delich supporter. Not, well, I say young, he's probably our age. I've had a few beers at this point. Ben, who came up to me uh, at the Dulwich game the other day to say that he was a fan of, of the final word. So I'm going to take a punt that that's actually Ben, who I met on the terraces after we equalised against Billy Ricky in the 98th minute. Enjoyed that on Saturday. But all the same, so, if it is the King of Camberwell, Nairon Clunas, I love you. You're the best. What is 228, though, Adam? And what does it have to do with Nairon Clunas? Hmm. That's a, that's, a, that's a better question. That's a better question. 228, it'll be a cricket reference, and it, it, it's... Oh, well, that, oh. that is rather the point, yeah. That's going to be parked for further than... I'll Google that later. Yeah, that one stumped me as well, I've got to say. I, I had very little idea what was going on. Um, but we've got Rian McKay has come in with 257. I reckon that's Wazim Akram's yes. top t- test score, 257. That, that jumped well, out, 257. I think it was 14-6s, wasn't it, in that, in that innings? Something like that against Zimbabwe? Yeah, yeah, was it? Feels it was, right. yeah, it was against the... So he's up there with Jason Gillespie, and uh, I think that's about it as as far as specialist bowlers, basically, to, to make test double hundreds. And now, not that I'm doing these sequentially, but we had the 257 and then a 258. This is Dominic W. who's come in with a 258. And the 258, I'm... Ben Stokes. It's got to be the Ben Stokes double hundred in Cape Town. Oh, we should call back, actually, because there was one that we were stumped on last week from Matthew Fidge, which was 279, and initially I, I thought Lara, but that was 277. We were both thinking it was the only, it was the lowest unachieved test score, That's but in right. fact what it was, it was a second innings at Edgebaston in 2005. It was what Australia made when mm. uh, Tony Abbott scored a Brett Lee and Michael Kasprovich were at the wicket bat- battling <laughs> out, uh, fighting for the underdog uh, as per Brett's video online during the week, they made 279. Can I just pop that bloke in Parliament so, already, by the way? Uh, this bloke has been a Liberal Party backer on social media for so long now, and good luck to him. Go for gold. But just pop the guy in Parliament. Give him an opportunity. Stitch up a pre-selection. Get him in the House of Reps. Brett Lee coming into the House of Reps. Big news. This one, easy, from David Smith. $3.55. $3.55 must be Dennis Lilly's yep. wicket tally, which Nathan Lyon is breathing down the neck of as we speak. From David Erickson, 203 What's a 203, Adam? But I mean, many players have made 203. It could be a wicket tally. A lot tally. of players have made 203, but which ones matter? Which ones are emotionally significant? Oh, blimey. This, this is hard, isn't it, when you've got no prompts? Jeff, give me a clue. There were two options here that stuck in my mind. One, because it's from a test series that I've memorised by heart where I wrote out the scorecard and put it up on my wall. So the series you did that for was the... I know you did that. It was the West Indies series, wasn't it? The home series in... No, no. It was around that time, but just after that. Just after that. So the 2001 India series. Oh, Matthew Hayden. Matthew Hayden in Chennai. Yeah. 203 in the game that Australia lost. But 203 is also Brad Hodges' unlucky score, the one that he made just Uh, before he got dropped from the Australian test team. Before Andre Nell bounced him out of test cricket. What a shame that was. Is it Hayden or Hodge, David Erickson? I don't know. Hodge. Has to be Hodge. Those options are up there. Okay. We've got... We've got the excellently cricket-themed name of John Leather. And John Leather has popped in Thank a you, 271. John. 271. Now, I'm not too sure about this one because the only thing that I could find that seemed relevant was, uh, is John Leather a big fan of Javed Dad's innings versus New Zealand? It seems unlikely. But so 271, 271st player for Australia. 
I'll leave you to ruminate on that one. The 111 is obviously Nelson, the yep. 111, stand on one leg, England obsession. 182. This has a few possible applications, I feel. 182. That's Ron Saggers, a test number for Australia. I don't think it's that. I'm, I'm back on that page now. I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> consumed with the idea that I might. Wally Edwards was playing 271 for Australia. Wally Edwards, of course, the former chairman of yeah. Cricket Australia. I, I, I don't know whether Wally listens to the show. Uh, he did play, I think, two test matches in the 74-75 series. He played in the test at Brisbane where Tony Gregg and uh, and, and Dennis Lee took each other on. That was his taboo, I think. But I doubt it's Wally Edwards. So but is, John, is John Leather a big Wally Edwards fan? Yeah, possibly. Is that, possibly. Is that what we're getting at? Was, was John Leather brushing away a quiet tear on the day that Wally Edwards stepped down? Yeah, he, re- he really loved the big three at the ICC. So who, who, was the, uh, who was the 180? Would you say what? 182. 182 is Sean Marsh's uh, highest test score. <laughs> Course, which, which I reckon. Which you knew. <laughs> I reckon. So this is from Haley Rawlack, who's come in with the 182. Thank you, Haley. But it's also an, an, another one, another innings that I have memorised almost stroke for stroke. It, it's Lara in Adelaide in that 2000 series you uh, mentioned yes, when he was yes. taking on Stuart McGill and absolutely destroying him into the grass banks um, time and time and time again until I think eventually he holed out off McGill in the deep. And, and Colin Miller took 10 wickets in that test. It was the around about the time when he won the Test Player of the Year. And I know you know this, but who debuted that day that he made the 182? Oh, Marlon Samuels. Marlon Samuels, Thank you very exactly. much. Very good. He made, he made the most beautiful uh, debut mid-30s score for a player who has frustrated since uh, Usman Khawaja. Yeah, I reckon it was 60. I reckon I've gone back and um, read the wisdom report on that, which is very sad. When you can, th- I've 35, got, he definitely made 35. Right, well, I've, there's a mention of it in Wisdom, and I don't know why I was drawn to read it, but I have. I wanted to know how it started off. I think he made 60 in Melbourne. He was batting with Courtney Walsh at the MCG, and they were trying to right. avoid the follow-on, and they were run out. Walsh was run out coming for a third. They avoided the follow-on with the second run, and then were run out <laughs> coming back for the third. And I reckon Samuels right. was probably 60, not out there. Yeah, I was but, there. Uh, but I was Marlin, there. He put on a hundred partnership with Lara at Adelaide and made thirty five and, and looked good and suddenly it was like the renaissance of West Indies cricket. Here it is. If only we knew that this was the guy who was going to be getting in a punch on with Shane Warne for the Melbourne Renegades. Yeah. So, all of those years later before putting his feet up on the table after the World T twenty win and or saluting Ben Slagging off all the journalists in the room. Give me more, uh, more numbers, uh, more numbers. What have we got? This one you can get two thirteen. Uh, Lara, Jamaica. Lara in Jamaica. Kingston 99, I reckon it is. Uh, it could yeah. also be more on theme for us would be Yunus Khan in Abu Dhabi in 2014. <laughs> that was well, the series that you and I preferred. We, we spent a lot of time uh, talking about that innings, but surely... We spent a lot of time commentating that innings. Yes, we So did. that was from the, the anonymously named Your Friend on Patreon. 213 is also the score at, uh, of the World Cup semi-final, the tie. Oh, of course. Yes, that's probably more likely. Uh, yeah, but Although still, I'd good like number. I think it's Eunice Khan. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'd love it to be Eunice Khan. <laughs> Christopher Clayford has come through with a, a 438. 438 is another South African one-day score. That's yep. what South Africa made in the chase to beat Australia. These last couple have had me stumped, I've got to admit, because they're at, at the upper echelon. Nick Miller has come through with 730. And the only thing I can find is that Sri Lanka made 730 versus Bangladesh in 2014. Yeah, that'll be it. I reckon that's a... That'll be it? Yeah, yeah. It's not the highest ever test inning score, though. That's the 900-odd that that England made when Hutton made all the runs. Thanks, Nick Miller, another colleague of ours. Very kind of you to chip in that much in episode. It's it's very good of you. I mean, it's niche. Maybe he just likes a 730 report. Maybe a 7 for 30. 
that makes Richard Gifford's 824 make a lot more sense because that also had me stumped. But if that's 8424 from Richard Gifford, who was also well, eight, an 100th subscriber. 8 for 24 is Glenn McGrath against England, isn't it? Or, or no, hang on, it wasn't against England. 8 for 24 is it's a McGrath. I, I know it's a McGrath. Is, is it against Pakistan? It's, it's McGrath's best figures. Yeah, it was against Pakistan in his pomp, early 2000s at Perth. Seven for 30, so though. So who was seven for 30? Seven for 30. Hmm. It sounds like the sort of thing that would we would know. 730th cap for England in tests might be just about right. I don't right. think they've gone that far, have they? They're, aren't they in the 600s? I mean, it sometimes feels like they're in the 700s or 800s. <laughs> they played 40, in the, 40 players in the 89 Ashes series, mate. When... Uh, yeah, when, when will England test players beat Murley's test wicket tally? The list continues. I thought they were only... Oh, no, 690. Joe Denley was a 690th test cricketer for England, so it's not 730 there. So they're going to knock off Warney 708 pretty soon. Put it this way. It's niche enough that we're going to have to send it back to Twitter. If you know what 730 represents, please hit us up on the Twitter accounts, which has been doing a roaring trade since we talked last week, Jeff. That was a, an episode which prompted plenty of discussion. So Nick Miller and Richard Gifford were the last two. And uh, and thank you again to everyone who's signed up. If you want to do that, you can go to patron.com. It's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the final word and that means that you can then say you're going to subscribe a couple of dollars or a nerd stat score or whatever it is that you want to put up per episode we will not do more than four episodes in a month and we often do less than four in a month because we're unreliable and lazy but you can you can sign up on a per episode basis you can put a monthly cap on it as well and it just means you can chip in a little bit to to help us keep the podcast going and find people to interview and travel to interview them and do all the kinds of things that we're doing so it's absolutely revolutionised the game in the last couple of months and we're incredibly grateful to everyone who's jumped on board to support. Yeah, well said, Jeff. It's uh, It's been remarkable the amount of people have got on board and, and yeah, we are very touched by it. Thanks so much for your support. And if you want to get on board, follow, as Jeff said, patreon.com forward slash the final word. Now, Popuri, I'm going to give us seven minutes to, to plough through this this week, Jeff. Bet365, we've uh, talked about that company's advertising of Cricket Australia um, recently, but um, you had a screenshot sent to you on Twitter this week, or we did both rather, in, in response to the podcast last week. It's getting more pervasive. I don't see how it, it's more and more. If you went to the Cricket Australia website while the Shield final was on, you had uh, four times as many opportunities to bet on the Shield final as you had to watch the Shield final or find out the score in the Shield final. Community sentiments shifting. Like, if you want to bet on sport, absolutely go for it. But you don't need to have it shoved down your throat every time you look at a sport. That that, that sort of money that those companies have should be used to gain access to everybody who wants to follow the game. And as I've mentioned before, there are people inside Cricket Australia who are very pissed off about this increasing influence of a betting company across a website which fundamentally as we said it before we'll say it again is publicly funded you can you can mix and match it however you want ca due to their tax status are subsidized by the taxpayer i think there's a higher bar that ca need to meet and they're not meeting it at the moment some brilliant responses jeff to our conversation on good old vinnie mancad last week uh, the one i'm drawn to is the um, no ball being signaled for an unsuccessful attempt 
it would be a good balancing effect so that the incentives would be aligned. Yeah, the bowler would have to be sure, basically, rather than taking a punt. We had some good emails come in on this one from Peter G saying it seemed unfair because a bowler overstepping doesn't get removed from the attack for the game. Could we have a similar sort of rule change to punish non-strikers without losing their wicket, like penalty runs, as with no balls, the camera is there for the third umpire to spot it? Of course, that would require mm. the third umpire to actually be real-time monitoring these things, and I think there's always the opportunity for for more argument when it, there'd be line calls, should penalty runs have been awarded in a close game where they would have decided the result, that kind of thing. The one anti-mancad line that sort of made some sense to me was an email from Bernard Sayer who said, for mine, cricket is fundamentally a game of bat versus ball. To be a decent bowler, you've got to challenge and ultimately defeat the batsman. As a batsman, you need to conquer the bowler's art and sneak the ball past his ten mates from time to time. So it's technically in the rules, but it feels empty in a cricketing sense. And I kind of get that mm. uh, because it, it, it's not a matter of skill. But then I also feel a bit empty when a, a batsman is purring along and gets run out in a regular sense because they're out. You don't get to watch them anymore. So I don't know if that swings it, but it's the most compelling argument to me in terms of saying that it's maybe something that you don't want to see. I had an interesting email from my old club, Hampstead, in the Middlesex comp, who've elected to ban the practice. The fielding captain, will, if, if it's a Hampstead player, will warn the opposing side if they think it's going on. But even in the event that they continue to back up, they'll decline to remove a batsman this way at the non-striker's end. It's very much seems to be an English thing that it's been the English players and the English ex-players who've been the most fired up about this and the most opposed to it. So, I mean, some part of me just wants to see every other team take the piss when they play England in the World Cup and just back up by two metres and see what they do. <laughs> I also note that we talked about the MCC in this topic last week and not having consulted them before our podcast. I did talk to them after and they changed their position, which prompted plenty of headlines, but they did say they adjudicated on, upon further inspection that Ashwin's act was against the spirit of the game, not just that, like the generalist spirit of the game, but the the preamble on in the front of the laws. And as it was explained mm. to me by Fraser Stewart, who I respect an awful lot, so I, you know I, I take what he says seriously. Every law in the book needs to also meet the preamble at the front. So it isn't just a case of sort of saying the law's there, therefore the law stands. It needs to meet both bars. So, yeah, I respect where they're coming from there in the sense that on this occasion, due to the fact that they assessed Ashwin as having stopped in his action and having, you know, duped Butler, that that did not constitute uh, a, a piece of action mm. which, which met the front of the book's preamble. I just don't quite understand how you can come to the position that Butler was tricked when he wasn't actually watching. You know, yeah. If, yeah. if it had been a fake bowling action, then I would understand that he'd been tricked. But he was making an assumption about when the ball would be delivered. Yeah, and, and, that's where, and that's where it muddies it up. Email in quickly from Kennedy Ross who said, what is the spirit of cricket really? I feel like it's used in discussion the same way someone might use the word un-Australian as a way of putting someone down by saying they're not respecting the history of something. Oh, oh, look, I, I don't share that view. I think that there is a passage um, that was written by Ted Dexter and Colin Cowdery in the late 90s and it was there for a reason and it's all there it's all publicly available at the front of the laws it's not as though it's a a made-up thing i think it's often used by people who don't have that reference though i think it's used by people in exactly that way no i, I, um, I agree with stick you. to beat people with it's like it's a, a generalist term but um you know the in spirit this, of christmas yeah but in this case we are talking about something which is there in black and white anyway uh, jeff we probably should bring this section to a close but it has been a pleasure as always uh thanks for your support those who have signed up on the patron account and all the wonderful feedback on social media following last week's episode uh that was a, a joy and for those that have jumped on board and 
helped us crack the ton. We're getting some real momentum at the moment. It's it's easy to get the motivation up to do a weekly episode. In the past, we've had these sort of fallow periods where we haven't recorded for weeks and weeks or even months on end. But at the moment, uh, there's a lot of good uh, a lot of good vibes around this pod, and, and we're having a great time doing it. A lot of goodwill indeed, and we're about to have some goodwill. Goodwill Anderson, right after this on the final one. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, and joining us on the show today, Will Anderson, a a man who came to prominence in the early 2000s, is extremely hilarious, and in that way is very much like Shane Watson. Uh, Welcome to the show, Will. (laughs) Yes, uh, you know, I'm a divisive figure. Uh, Some would feel that I'm only starting to reach my potential now. Uh, Yes, very Shane Watson-like, and afraid of ghosts. Oh, really? Yeah. That's a famous Shane Watson story, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. They were staying in that castle in Edinburgh or whatever, and he had to sleep Durham. in the foot of somebody else's bed because he thought there was a ghost in his room. That's right. And when Darren Goff was bowling to him the next day, he started pretending to be a ghost <laughs> while he was running down the pitch. It was a beautiful moment in the UK-Australia relations. We wanted to get you on the show because, uh, look, I guess like many things in our lives, um, Twitter is the eventual cause of much of what happens. But you're someone who, you know, you've got half a million odd followers. A lot of them are from overseas. And yet, I reckon in your top five most tweeted about topics is cricket. Did you have any moment of hesitation about outing yourself to the broader public as a cricket follower? Oh, absolutely not, for a start. Like, I mean, I love cricket. I I never realised there was something I was meant to be ashamed of. (laughs) Um, uh, But I have, like, the interesting thing is the great thing, like, I did this uh, podcast, there's this wonderful American comedian called Jackie Cation, and she has this podcast called The Dork Forest, and you go on and you will talk about whatever your dorkdom is, whatever it is that you're particularly interested in and you'll try to explain it to her. It's a really good concept, Mm. right? And so I went on and and did cricket. And the idea of like trying to explain cricket to an American who's not even really particularly into sports, you do start to realise (laughs) the myriad of complications that our beautiful game has that we've been raised with so that we take for granted. But when you're trying to explain them to a complete stranger, um, you know, to me only unfolds the majesty of the game rather than makes it ridiculous. <laughs> and it, it shows you sort of how hard it is to get across in that um, I recently put a post up about doing some stats on Elise Perry, which which you posted, and Dave Anthony, who does the Dollop podcast, who's a massive baseball fan, just replied saying, this is gibberish. I felt quite touched at being personally insulted by someone who, who runs a podcast that I enjoy. But, well, what uh, I liked about that, though, was then somebody who was either an American or Australian decided they would be the translator and put put her statistics in baseball terms and explained it to him. And I felt like I learned something about baseball through our interaction as well. I'm not sure if the translation was that great because it had had it been um, actual, she would have been the greatest baseballer of all time, bar none, you know, which maybe she could be. But, you know, it, it was nice of them to try. I mean, technically, you know, based on the fact that she managed to play, you know, soccer for Australia and she's managed to dominate cricket for Australia, I, I would back if she wanted to play baseball for Australia, at least Perry would probably do a pretty good job for it. Better than Babe Ruth. That is the, the news line out of this show. <laughs> Will, I was thinking about this when, um, uh, about the Twitter thing before we uh, had a chat with you. You know how, like, when you live overseas like I do, your Australian accent gets broader. Uh, I think it's... Uh, uh, an affliction of most people that live abroad is it the same to an extent with the amount you tweet about cricket when you were splitting your time between America and Australia that was almost a reflection of 
um, how you were holding on to your Australian identity by um, tweeting a lot about the national game. Uh, also, the hours tend to work for overseas tours. That's the great thing, you know. I mean, like yeah, right. here, I would have to get up in the middle of the night to watch an Ashes, but mm-hmm. like when you're yeah. over there, you know, the time the time period works very well. Nothing better than spending six hours while people are sleeping in Australia, tweeting endlessly about <laughs> cricket. <laughs> Um, the thing that made me think that, you know, we might have some shared interests was a tweet that you put out where you said, am I the only one who sees the giant Gatorade bottle come out and thinks, wow, I could make that into a massive bong. <laughs> and and I, th- I, I went to Eltham High School yeah. where literally half the school population would go down behind the oval at lunchtime, hop over the fence, go down the, the banks of the creek and then get involved in some hydroengineering. It was a very Australian moment. That- I mean, all they need is a giant piece of uh, garden and hose yeah. and you could really, that's all you really need to get that done <laughs> always 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 chop from the middle when you're stealing your neighbor's hose yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, rule. that's where the sweet spot is <laughs> <laughs> of course i grew up in dandenong so you know there's a there's, there's a correlation there between eltham and probably where you grew up as well will in gippsland how much cricket was part of your childhood in sale and uh, growing up what were the main streets of gippsland like on the cricket field so my my father, uh, Graham, was a legendary country cricketer. He played sort of big country level and, uh, you know, if it were modern times, I imagine might have, you know, played at a, even a higher level than that. You know, he was a very, mm. very talented cricketer, but obviously, you know, he's a dairy farmer and this was sort of in the days where, you know, if you made the big country team, you might go up for a country week tournament, but that was about the... Yeah, the grand extent of what your cricket ambitions would be. Um, mm. And he played country cricket until he was, I think, well, late 50s, early 60s. Like, he was one of those guys who was, you know, still going around in B grade at Hayfield. <laughs> at, it's fair to say that I'm not sure that the... Because he would bat left-handed, he was a really good... Uh, and he would bowl right arm off spin. But it's fair to say I'm not sure that his uh, elbow was going the 15 degrees <laughs> necessary. <laughs> there might have been a little bit of morally action by the later years of his 50s, I would have suggested. I think you earn that. I think probably over, say, the age of 50, you get one extra degree of flex with each year. (laughs) That should should be the ICC rulings. So he was a a gun cricketer, and he would have had grand ambitions for me to also be a a good cricketer. My brother was a pretty good cricketer, but he would have loved my dad. I remember he, he would tell this story. I was about three or four and um, you know I'm the oldest kid and he's up playing a big tournament in the city and apparently at the end of the day at the end of the game um, I stood on uh, somebody's uh, you know sort of gear in the middle of the room and I made all the cricketers gather around and watch me and I I went through all the umpire's signals so I did you know six and four and you're out and all these (laughs) sort of things and dad at that time he said he was like oh god this is great he's going to play cricket for Australia Uh, turns out (laughs) I I just was going to be a professional show off in front of any audience that we gather around but um, yeah he was a really great cricketer I was a I tried hard but um, was was never a particularly good cricketer but cricket was a massive part of our life and it's still a massive part of his life I mean he he still coaches at you know he's mid 70s now and he's still coaching cricket down there he he's still involved he'll go in and score on the weekends at Hayfield so that's his sort of social life still 
Is there a bit of pressure being the son of someone who's really good at sport and then you end up getting into a sort of arts creative world that's something completely different? I was lucky that I was a pretty good AFL footballer, like an Aussie rules footballer. So I had some sporting ability. But yes, there was always a, a touch of, you know, when I was on the cricket field, my dad was a legendary cricketer and I was a bit of a dud. And the comparison, as you know, with cricket, there's plenty of time for people to mm. completely dissect your character. And uh, yeah, a fair bit of that was done. And I, I heard a lot in my junior years how I was nowhere near as good as my dad and, mm. you know, speculation about my mum's infidelity and all these sort of, you know, things, all the classy things you hear in a day at the cricket. I can't believe that would happen on a cricket field. That just sounds completely unlike anything we've heard over the last couple of years. Plus, they've got the numbers as well in cricket, not so much in footy, where you can just put put your numbers next to someone else and say, well, you average this, he averaged this. Yeah, and I was like, I mean, I'm not a particularly, like my dad's a bit shorter than I am, you know, that classic sort of, you know, a bit more compact, a bit mm. more coordinated, whereas I was sort of, the, the, you know, six foot two and a half when I was 13 or 14, and... Uh, wasn't yeah, fast enough to be a big fast bowler or something. There's nothing you can do with your body when you... you know, I had the same sort of thing. You're just this long, gangly string of bits that aren't really connected together very well. And there's no way you can get a signal to your foot that's that far away to do what it needs to do in time. It just can't happen. Uh, you know, I I asked Steve Waugh. I was interviewing him on the radio many years ago. I, uh, he was my one of my absolute heroes. And I was really excited to have him on the show and... Afterwards, um, I was so excited that I he'd left some of his tea in the studio, and I actually drank the rest of his tea. <laughs> I was like, like I'd be infused with the spirit of Steve War. Like suddenly we were spit sisters or something. And uh, but I asked him. I said, you know, when those great West Indian attacks were bowling to you, and you know the ball's coming down at you know one one hundred and fifty k's plus. You know, how do you have the the time to make the decision and then get the rest of your body to, you know, actually play the right shot. And he just said to me, he said, well, he said, you don't. He said, you practice and you practice and you practice and then you get out in the middle and you hope in that moment that mm. your instincts will take over, that you will do the right thing because yep. you don't actually have the time to make the decision. And I've, I often think about that with, with my career with stand-up and stuff is that, on the days when I'm thinking about what it is that I'm doing, if mm. I have to think about it too mm. much, then I'm not in the right spot. You've got to kind of prepare properly and then get out there and just try to play the game. So just to close the loop on that, Will, when did you stop playing and do you still get dragged into the occasional sort of jazz game or celebrity game or something like that, which gives you the chance to turn out and put on the creams? No, I, uh, I when I retired, I retired gracefully. <laughs> I walked away from the game. <laughs> Look, I think that the game doesn't exist where... I, I, I think this is the mistake sometimes we often, you know, make with, you know, sport, which is that in some ways the connection between that you love a sport, that the love of it will be enhanced by the playing of it. Hmm. And I'm not sure hmm. that that is always the case. In fact, the only time in my life where I went through a period where I didn't really love cricket was when I was playing cricket and not being particularly good at cricket hmm. and then started to have a resentment to cricket. Whereas like as a, an observer of cricket, as an audience member, as somebody who doesn't consider myself to be a competitor or someone who wants to actually play cricket, I'm someone who likes to watch cricket. Mm. I like to read about cricket. I like to talk about cricket, but I actually don't get any particular joy from playing cricket. Mm. So why, why do we love cricket? Like it's such a 
bloody ridiculous sport. It's completely absurd in every way. What is it? Well, for me, I mean, look, it's been said before, and I'm certainly not the the first person to say it, but it's, you know, it's it's physical chess. You know, the, the great thing about cricket is that it's operating, particularly test match cricket, you know, it's the shorter form's a little bit different in this regard, but in every moment, it's not just your skill and, you know, physicality, the fact that you could hit a ball or bowl a ball or these sort of things, but it's a series of mind games and calculations, you know, whether it be about the setting of the field, who you've brought on to bowl, what their record is against you, what shot they played last time, what shot you think they're going to play next time. All these things are a game of strategy, a game of psychology. And, you know, you saw it with the great players. Yes, Shane Warne could bowl a wrong and, or, yeah, sorry, a bowler leggy that'll rip around your legs. But at the same time, he got like half the people out in his career by intimidating them, thinking them out, you know, like getting inside their head in that moment. So his capacity for playing that sort of mental game, it was as impressive as like the physicality of what it is that he Mm -hmm. was doing. So for me, that's part of it. Like, you know, it's cricket is one of those things that almost like it's, you know, it's sports meets Dungeons and Dragons or something. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a game of strategy as much as it's a game of physicality. On one of your many podcasts, Will, uh, you had Andy Zaltzman on last year, who's a friend of Jeff and mine uh, and a statistician for the BBC doing his cricket these days as well as doing comedy. I recall you two talking about how it's almost a microcosm for life for some types of people's personalities, like people who are drawn into cricket like life being a little bit unexplainable, a bit odd. Is that how you interpret your own interest in the game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of those things about cricket that is so, you know, particularly uh, cruel is that idea of that, you know, one bad decision can really cost you. Like you could be in the best form of your life as, you know, a batsman and you get a Jaffa, you know, in the first over and you're out and you're done. That's your, that's your day yep. done. Like, you know, you, you fumble a ball in Aussie rules, you know, early on in the game, you get another opportunity a minute later to go and redeem your mistake. And so mm. cricket, it, particularly in that way, can be so cruel. The idea that sometimes it isn't resolved is like I think really important like you know it's one of the few games that we have that you know like some people use that as a criticism of the game they're like you know you can play for five days and not get a result and I'm like yeah you can play for five days and not get a result so much of your life if you just take on the example of that things sometimes you'll play for five days and at the end there will be no result yep. other than that you played for five days Oh, absolutely that's a better one like so much of life isn't about a clear win or a clear loss you know so much of what you do in life is about well we did that and here's what happened at the end of it but there's no clear yep. win or a lose and, and we can think about yeah there were a couple of high points and there were a couple of low points but in the end what's the result i don't know yeah. you, you can have romantic relationships that could be called a draw at the end of it you go well, well <laughs> some stuff happened uh no one really emerged. There's no clarity yeah. about the result. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, yeah we, we were both losers today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of imagining this big group of comics, Will, who kind of huddle around the Crick Info scorecard. I mean, I mentioned Zaltzman before, but Adam Zwar is another cricket nut who you've had on your show but engages a lot with the work we do on this podcast and other bits and pieces in our professional life. Is there a big band of people in your industry who share this love of cricket? There's... Well, the ones who do are very passionate about it. You know, I think that that's more the point. You know, you have in comedy, 
I think cricket in particular is one of those things that lends itself to, yeah, the deeper that you're willing to dive into it, Mm. you know, then the more, you know, joy that you're going to get out of it. And, you know, I think that like comedians often have that personality of going, well, if you're interested in something, you want to learn every single thing that you possibly can about that topic. And, you know, for me, I, I, I certainly am one of those people who, probably reads about cricket and like uh, listens to discussions about cricket probably more than I actually watch cricket. Often I find mm. that I watch cricket so that I can understand the storylines, you know, that so that, you know, the, the game itself while, you know, is like I, I, I enjoy watching cricket. I enjoy the stories around cricket as equally as much. And often I'm just watching it so that I can then understand the conversations and, you know, understand why this person's, you know, under pressure or to me, that's the, I mean, the joy of cricket to me is as much about, you know, the drama over the marshes or the, you know, is this person going to, um, you know, like, I mean, for me, the, the, yeah, so for example. It's a character drama. Right, it's a character drama. And the more you know the characters and the more flawed the characters are or the more that, like, I mean, you know, I would never, I mean, obviously the sandpaper incident was like, you know, darkest day in Australian sport and all that. And I believe that at, at the time as well. But now what it's set up you know, is this amazing opportunity for these players to have a redemption story or for us to see how that story unfolds. And in the in the great you know, story of Steve Smith's career, for example, mm. it's going to be, you know, incredible to see, you know, what sort of cricketer he comes back as. And, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, uh, what sort of cricketer David Warner comes back as. And and Bancroft, you know, when we're recording this, has you know, made a whole bunch of runs in his first uh, you know, match back with the Red Bull. And to me, I'm suddenly much more interested in his career and where it's going to go than I probably was mm. pre-Sandpaper game. What I'm finding fascinating at the moment is I was listening to some talkback radio the other day and it seems as though people are willing to give Smith an opportunity. Uh, they acknowledge that Bancroft's role in what happened in South Africa was largely what he was directed to do, but there is an enormous amount of hatred for David Warner, like an unprecedented amount of hate for this bloke in terms of a sport that's typically genteel. Your perspective will tapping into public opinion as often as you do do you think there's even a way back for him in the way the public perceive him or or is he too far gone and even if he does come back and pile on runs he'll never really recover in the public eye uh, I think probably a little bit of both but I think more than anything if he comes back and makes runs all will be forgiven I mean come on like I mean Warn- That's Australia yeah I mean <laughs> like, if you wrote down on a piece of paper the things that Warney did <laughs> like you know it's fair to say he's got a longer list than uh, David Warner did and look there's a, a bit mm. of yeah there's a bit of David Warner's attitude that people didn't like in the first place and they were just looking for an excuse to you know to but also, also I do think there is a certain element of us all suspecting that the major part of who was to blame for what happened was David Warner um, if in his absence we'd had a whole bunch of other people come in and stake their claim to be in that side then I think perhaps we might not have heard much about David Warner and he might have gone on the international sort of you know uh, 2020 circuit mm. and, and you know that sort of thing and probably not played cricket for Australia but luckily for him I think that you know no one stepped up enough that there's an opportunity for him if he comes back and scores runs I would love to see I don't think this will happen but I would love to see him come back and do something 
in order to win the Australian public back. You know, it's something I feel like he needs to do something that shows I've changed as a person. And what I would say that is, is I think that he should bat at three in the ashes. Now, I know that's a weird thing to say, but I reckon the first drop is our trouble spot for the ashes. There's no one. There's been a lot of talk about moving Smith up the order, and I just don't think that's sensible. I think you keep him at four, right? We're going to have a couple of openers that we'll be able to, whether it be Burns or whether it be Harris or whether it be Bancroft. I think we've got some openers who can open. What we need is a guy at three who can be there if we're if we're you know one for none like you know if you know who can, who knows how to open but it was also in that position if that we manage to pile on 150 you know for none on the first day can come in at, at first down and sort of you know bash it around a bit i think warner's that guy and i think if he came back and said here's what i want i want to bat in the hardest position in the lineup and i feel like i owe this team something i think he's got the game for it and i think it would be something that you know, he could say to the Australian public, I'm willing to come back and really back in the hardest position in the team and take the responsibility and I'm a different person and I understand that I need to do this. Like make that as, as a, an offering, a, yeah. a, a gesture. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. It's interesting that your response to it when it happened was uncharacteristically serious. You posted, um, remembering that wonderful three minutes when I woke up this morning, checked the overnight results and the only thing I was disappointed about was the score. Right. Um, and that was, <laughs> it, it was, it was interesting to see that it, it got you. It hit you as it hit a lot of people. Oh, no, I I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated by what happened because I just thought it was completely against the, you know... Look, there has been so many things over the years that we have done that have been against the spirit of cricket. So it's not like it was the first and it won't be the last. Mm. However, it did kind of feel like we weren't cheats. Now, it's funny in cricket because... There's so many rules about what is cheating and what yep. isn't cheating. And, you know, what's like, you know, are you meant to walk if you nick it? Are you not meant to walk if you nick it? That's cheating as much as anything else. Like mm-hmm. there are so many elements of the game yeah. that are clearly, you know, cheating. Well, if you claim a catch the bounces, you're a cheat. But right. if you don't walk when you nick it, that's apparently fine. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a complicated set thing. of guidelines by which yeah. we live. And <laughs> you're allowed to throw the ball on the ground to rough it up. Yep. And you're allowed to, I don't know, like, you. I mean, you know, people have used lollies and and chewing gum and all these sort of things, but it just felt very un-Australian. Like we, and it's a horrible word to use, but it felt yeah. like what we say our values are around the Australian cricket team. It felt very. It felt like we were just suddenly like, well, all that really matters is winning, and I yeah. think that we lose when we think that all that matters is winning. Of course, it's great to win, but. It's winning in itself. It's a made-up game. It mm. means nothing. It's a game, right? The only way it means something is if you value the mm. game. And if you cheat to win the game, then you haven't really won in the first place. It's right. about how you win as much as winning. And some of our most glorious times as like fans of the sport have been you know, heroic losses or you know, valiant yeah. efforts. Mm. You know, and I admire those much more than... Um, than I do somebody, you know, cheating in order to win. Well, it's it's a strange concept because the satisfaction in winning is being better than the uh, the opponent. Right. And if you cheat, you're not better than them. You you weren't, and you had to do something else. And you look, there is that element of like, well, everybody's cheating, and if everybody's cheating, mm. how come you, uh, we can't cheat as well? But I I just think that that is a a terrible precedent. 
to set. And I was disappointed. There was just so many elements of it that I was disappointed because the act itself, whatever, in the grand scheme of things, you know, there are much worse things that happen all the time. In fact, even in the sport, there are worse things that happen than, than what happened. But it was the fact that a younger player had been kind of made the scapegoat mm. of this situation. If you're going to do it, do it yourself. Don't, you know, kind of get the youngest guy in the team and recruit him and sort of be like, you're the one who has to do this to fit in. The fact that it betrayed that there was a power struggle between our sort of two best batsmen who clearly were on different pages and had become, you know, had a relationship where they were essentially had competing interests and that, you know, that leadership wasn't shown in that situation. There was a whole myriad of levels uh, that I was disappointed in what happened. But I'm also glad that the punishments were so strong because I'm a big believer in over-punishing, like, in this regard, because I think you're best way back is to be overpunished. Mm. If you're underpunished, yep. it sticks with you forever. But when these players come back, everyone's going to say they did their time. Even Warner, they're going to go, right. well, they did their time. They were away for a very long time. They've paid for what they did. They have the opportunity now to come back and you know, build their careers again. Oh, absolutely. Imagine had they uh, given in to some of the public pressure before Christmas and, and reduced the bans on Smith and Warner now, looking back at it a few months later, it would have been the greatest PR calamity. Well, Jeff wrote a book in the aftermath of what happened in South Africa. I've sort of mused that there could be a sociology PhD in the public response alone. What was your perspective on that? I mean, you mentioned that you felt visceral pain as a cricket lover, but the broader way in which the Australian public did respond so fiercely, is that something you would have predicted had it been put to you before, or did it sort of outstrip anything we could have possibly expected? Um, it's an interesting question, isn't it? As I stare at uh, Jeff's book, which is actually just over there in the pile of books, uh, jammed between a book by Mark, Mike Carlton and one by Sam Mitchell. And uncomfortable menage a trois. Yeah, I think I bought my dad the Mike Carlton one for Christmas and he bought me the Sam Mitchell one. There. <laughs> um, I, I think that to an outsider it would have seemed like a massive overreaction. I think if you were someone who wasn't Australian and probably if you were an Australian who was hadn't been raised, you know, with cricket and raised with that idea that, you know, the Australian test cricket captain is, you know, as equally as important job as the prime minister of the country, that grand mythos, you know, the, the you know, it's just not cricket, that sort of, even though we know that that is bullshit and we know that over the years mm. that has continually been bullshit, we say it and we, we believe it to a certain extent and... No, I didn't think the reaction was um, surprising. I actually thought that the reaction was what I imagined it would be. In, in some ways, I was uh, gladdened, not because I, I think they deserved it, but it felt like we still cared about something. Mm. I, think we, I think we live in this world these days where, you know, so many times the rules are being broken that we just come to expect that all rules are broken. That, you know, the rich and powerful, you know, can get away with whatever they want. They, you know, they put all their money in Panama and the banks screw us all. And, you know, that we're constantly being cheated in some way. And that we had this moment where we could just be like, no, we don't, we don't think this is right. And mm. we don't think this is appropriate. Now, did I feel for sorry for the players in the middle of that? Yeah, absolutely I did. I mean, like, you know, they were 
people who made a, a mistake in the middle of a high pressure scenario and you know it shouldn't be something that they have to live with for the rest of their lives and it eventually became a a horrible sort of you know media pack that was you know pretty brutal and i imagine was like you know incredibly traumatic for the the people who were at the heart of it but there was something that i really liked that i was gladdened by that uh, that people still gave a shit about something I suppose issues like this aside, cricket is inherently a very funny sport. It's ridiculous. A lot of people have made careers around the comedy of it. When I think about it, the 90s for me is sort of peak cricket comedy time. It's like Phil Tufnell batting at 11 for England and dropping catches and being emblematic of that team. It's like the great moustache era with sort of Merv and Booney. <laughs> Dean Jones being angry at everything all the time. There's Warney, of course. You once posted, surely if we're going to give someone an OAM for services to Australian cricket, it should be Daryl Cullinan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who, uh, if you're born later as a South African batsman that Shane Warne got out a lot. Was cricket funnier in the 90s or were we just young in the 90s therefore it seems like the best? I mean, I do, I, I think that there was certainly still that uh, vibe of like there were some characters that you just loved. I mean, for me, it was, you know, people like Gladstone Small and, like, you know, all these... There were, it was still a bit of an unusual group of people that they'd got together where it felt a bit like... Um, what is that? What are those terrible action movies? The Expendables. Like, often a cricket team would come to, a, <laughs> come to Australia and it felt like a whole bunch of, like... I don't, I don't think these people would ever be in a room together right. if they didn't play cricket together. Like the and, Blues Brothers rounding the band up. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Find the guy where working in the auto shop and the, the waiter. and the But i got to be honest with you. I mean, there's still a lot to, you know, like there's still a lot of musing about, you know, cricket these days, I would have thought. Like, I mean, you, you just look at the recent results. Like, you know, you've got teams like Sri Lanka beating South Africa in South Africa. You know, you've got... Um, you know, I mean, like even in Australia at the moment, like, I mean, the marshes were for a long time, you know, I mean, incredibly funny. I mean, that was just a, <laughs> I mean, a grand <laughs> piece of work that like, you know, was you know, infinite in its jest, you know, um, you know, you have the ongoing Glenn Maxwell saga, which in itself has some sort of dark humor, you know, that, it's there's pathos, but there's humor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, the two, yeah, we're really running side by side for a long time because it was the, you know, in some ways, the marshes who were keeping Glenn Maxwell out of the team to the point where really he should have called, yeah, just changed his name to Glenn Marsh and been done with it and got picked for Australia <laughs> all the time. But um, I think that there is some inherent humour in the, you know, I mean, you've got Usman Khawaja trying to establish himself while his brothers, you know, <laughs> are getting up to all sorts of horrible business. And I mean, imagine having to deal with that in your summer. Not only were you injured coming into the major test, but suddenly your brother's all over the newspaper for faking terrorist acts. I mean, there's a lot of inherent humour still left in the team. The fact that Nathan... Lion is, you know, was the groundskeeper in Adelaide and now is the greatest <laughs> off spinner in the history of Australian cricket. I mean, I still think there's a lot to, you know, to like, to laugh at. I mean, come on. Well, the Australian cricket team is being captained by a guy who retired a couple of years ago. Like, couldn't, <laughs> couldn't even get picked as the wicketkeeper for his own state. And yet the guy who replaced him as the wicketkeeper, who's the leading run scorer in the domestic competition, now can't get picked for Australia <laughs> because the guy he replaced is captain of Australia. I mean, come on. You've just got to look for the comedy. It's right there. <laughs> if Matthew Wade were captaining Australia, it could be 
pretty funny yeah. <laughs> right, right about now. A sliding doors moment had things been different. <laughs> well, going back to the start of your, I guess, radio career, working with Adam Spencer, I mean, that's my first exposure to you as a sort of a, a daily staple of my life in the Triple J breakfast days. Was that a big part of your two bonding as well? Absolutely it was. In fact, the, probably the most memorable thing we ever did on the show was... Uh, before the Australians went to India on that uh, famous tour, I said on the radio that uh, they should have picked a bag of sand rather than Matthew Hayden because at least a bag of sand wouldn't dangle its bad outside off stump and get caught in the slips all the time. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, as everybody famously knows, this was the yeah, the series where he went over and just like could not uh, stop making runs. And I remember I was jogging on uh, Bondi Beach after he'd won, won a, a, made another hundred and been the best player in the game and uh, I walked into the studio the next morning and I said to Adam we're going to have to write a little song and I remember it was to Outcast I'm Sorry Miss Jackson and it's called I'm Sorry Matt Hayden. <laughs> People probably can still find it. I think it's still on YouTube yeah. somewhere somebody's posted it and uh, yeah it was my apology to Matt Hayden and I still think to this day it's probably the thing that people talk to me about the most but yeah we were both absolute uh, cricket fanatics and that was one of the big things we bonded on. Have you spoken to him? Has he spoken to you about it? Matt Hayden, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, well, he's aware of it. <laughs> it's fair to say he's aware of it. I'm not sure he was as fond of it as we were, but he was aware. The beauty of this being a podcast, Will, is that retrospectively we can splice in that song right about now. <laughs> Sorry, Matt Hayden. You are Never meant to say that you were crap. Apologize, saying you could never bat. Sorry, Matt Hayden. You are for real. Start safe trace with some giant hits. Much better than a Michael Kaskovitz. Matthew Hayden, he's got it going on. Sexy shaped head cards. Forums are so strong. There's no warning. He just can't score a run. Hope you're in the green baggy, Betty, forever. Forever? Score the big runs in record time. Hit a massive sixes and fours. Pissing all over the brothers' war. It's like hearing some giant church bell ring as you dispatch Abhijan Singh. You know, call me a madman. I think we're bound to Brisbane born Brabant. You know, we think you're better than Tendulka. Tendulka, Oka. Oka, 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 Oka. And we always have, Maddie. We think you're great. We've loved you. We've never said a bad word about you, man. Bring it on. Sorry, Matt Hayden. You are for real. Can you bat again in parking spot? We'll outscore him with a single shot. Sorry, Matt Hayden, you are for real. Make all the fans shout Gloria. Could you please move to Victoria? Sorry, Matt Hayden, you are for real. You have led a team of winners. Pity Gilly can't play against the spinners. Sorry, Matt Hayden, you are for real. You have led the Aussies from the front board. Says you're not the f- <laughs> I remember that, that series being a real turning point for me. That was when cricket really got me, 100%. Was there a moment like that for you where a particular match or a series or a game or a player or something that grabbed your attention as a watcher for the first time? Yeah, I, for me it was Alan Border. So, I, like, I think up until then I was an observer of cricket, but really those like that sort of that tough period for Australian cricket when Border you know got that team together and he was like absolutely you know 
classic Captain Grumpy, you know, Alan Border. And, you know, I remember him, yeah, we were yelling at Craig McDermott and, you know, it, like, you know, and that, that era, that sort of gritty, determined sort of era of cricket was certainly the one that really kind of turned me from being a, you know, an observer of cricket into like being a hardcore fan of cricket. And then, you know, that era of the superstar you know, batsman, you know, Brian Lara. And because uh, I was, I remember growing up with like, you know, the great West Indian teams, but as much as, you know, it was great to watch Viv Richards and, you know, Clive Lloyd and all those sort of guys bat, it wasn't until sort of Lara and Tendulkar and that era of cricketers that I really sort of broadened out into having a real, like following the game internationally. Mm. Up until that point, I probably followed the Australian team and whoever we were playing in Australia that summer. But yeah. uh, when it, when that great era of, you know, international batsmen started, that was when I started following sort of the international game mm. and, and, you know, trying to follow the careers of, you know, these players right around the world. Yeah, like Lara having that tour of Sri Lanka where he just made impossible amounts of runs, or Andy Flower going to India. There were these these moments that were just that were just extraordinary, and I suppose it was the burgeoning nature of the internet that made it much easier to follow and, and keep up with those those games. Yeah, well, that's it as well, isn't it? You had the capacity to actually be able to you know find out that you kind of forget that, don't you? That it's only really been fifteen years mm. like, where we've had the capacity to have this up-to-date information in the way that we do, that everybody can just go onto the computer. And, yeah, the idea that I watched, I watched a whole bunch of, like, the South African, you know, Sri Lanka series recently. Because you could. Because I could. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's amazing, that capacity. And yeah. then suddenly the world becomes smaller. But I think it's also because of the nature of, you know, the short form of the game, you know, the 2020 form of the game, is that, you know, these cricketers have... You see them more often, even if you know, their team isn't touring, you see them play in, in, in various guises. So you start to understand you know, who these personalities are and what their strengths and weaknesses are and how they sort of, you learn more of their story and how they, they fit into the game, which only sort of broadens, your, broadens and deepens your appreciation of it, I think. Have you got a cricket pilgrimage in your will? Do you think that at some point you'll find yourself sitting along Australian overseas tour, watching every ball from the tour games through to the the final day so my great dream in life my absolute ambition was always to watch test cricket in every country where they play mm. test match cricket and then uh i got in a relationship with someone who now my ambition is to sneak out of the house when she's not looking and just watch some cricket <laughs> so so i'm not i'm not sure that that's ever going to happen but my aim is that i might go to the ashes in, in mid-year my I've got a, a break mid-year that kind of coincides with the mm. the World Cup and then the Ashes, and uh, so I'm hoping that I might be able to go to the first Test this year, which would be that that that's kind of my my dream. Well, that's in, in the short that, that's in Birmingham, so it could be a two day job. You you might you'd be able to get there for a weekend <laughs> and be done with it. And also the first Test back for uh, for Smith and Warner, it could be the perfect Test to bear as, in terms of witnessing history and what will doubtless be a crazy response at Edgbaston, which is by far. The the loosest ground in England. It's one of those things that I would absolutely love to do. And uh, I've seen cricket played in New Zealand and I've obviously seen it here. I've never been to a game in England. Um, I was, yeah, I'd love to go to the Caribbean. I'd love to go and do that. I'd love to go to India. I haven't been to India, watch a game over there. Yeah, I mean, these are all things that I would love to be able to do. But um, 
you know, my my partner is not necessarily as fond of uh, the, the, the cricket as I am. <laughs> you should be able to make it work around Edinburgh this year as well. Edinburgh, because of the way the Ashes are a, a fraction later in the summer because of the World Cup, I think from memory the, 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 uh, the fringe starts about the same time as the first Test match. Yeah, that's about right, actually. I think the first Test might be just before the fringe and then, yeah, the fringe rolls on afterwards. So. Is that something you'll be going to? Well, I mean, maybe if I, like, just like, make up that excuse that yep. that's what, something <laughs> I'm going to where I'm really just there to watch some cricket. We did an episode with Earthboy with Tim Levinson. Talked to him a fair bit about touring, about the brutality of the road. That's something that you would have a lot of familiarity with as well, I'd imagine. Yes, that I mean, absolutely true. Although I guess mine's a much more solitary lifestyle than, you know, the cricket is. You know, there's no sort of... Uh, you know, idea that you can't take the wives and girlfriends away on tour or that, you know, you have to go through some great big bonding exercise. But as you guys would know from covering the game, there's a lot of, you know, uh, hotels and, you know, a lot of, you know, time by yourself and uh, a lot of time away from home. And it can be quite taxing, you know, on your general life. Um, I guess my hours are a little different, you know, like, I mean, obviously with the cricket, they tend to play during the day and then you have your nights. And mm. whereas my, mine's kind of the opposite, you know, I work nights and, and have my days to myself, which is a little bit different. But uh, and probably you get in a little less trouble in that way, I would imagine. Do you still love touring? I mean, I know touring's still still a pretty big part of your life, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. But you, you, what you tend to find is that other people in your life don't love it as much. That's what happens right. with touring. Like, I mean, touring's fun for... Yeah, being away is fun for the person who's away, hmm. you know, in a general <laughs> sense. Although I will say this, there's a there's a point in your life, and I'm sure it's the same with, with cricketers as well, but essentially touring's really fun in the early years where the hotels you're staying in are clearly much better than the terrible place you actually live in and then there's a point where you become successful enough that the hotel you're staying is is nowhere near as good as the house you actually live in and then it gets harder to go away from your house you know so like i mean i'm sure warney loved being away the early years but then suddenly when he was staying at a hotel and they didn't have a giant pool with you know number 23 on the bottom of it then he wanted to be at home more and and mirrors on the ceiling and yeah i I want to read you a couple of tweets because You've mentioned Shane Warne, so this comes into it. Shane Warne selling his house. Prospective buyers should run it over once or twice with that CSI blue light uh, was one thing you posted. You mentioned Glenn Maxwell before, his trip to India in 2013. Yeah, oh, Glenn Maxwell, the first Australian in 84 years to open the batting and the bowling. I wonder why no one has ever tried that before. Oh, I see. (laughs) And the third in that trio is Shane Watson puts his hand up to resume bowling. Unfortunately, while putting his hand up, he's pulled his hamstring and is out for six weeks. These three, for me, are the holy trinity of Australian cricket comedy. They're the funniest in every way. But I wondered if that... Is anyone funnier? Uh, Well, Warney, I I wrote two books in the early days and they were, I mean, they were just like, I had this weekly column in the newspaper and like... I, an American friend of mine read them recently, found them and, right. and read the books. And uh, his only question he had was, who's this Shane Warne <laughs> and why does he get mentioned so often? <laughs> because the, the, the columns wouldn't be about Shane Warne. It would just, there would be no situation where I couldn't in some way insert Warney into the scenario. And uh, I did later find out uh, through another friend of mine that Warney was very aware of the fact that I was doing that and had asked in, in oh, pretty bad. clear terms if I could stop doing that all the time. Um, uh, Warney, definitely the funniest, but the greatest as well. That's a, that was the thing about Warney that was, you know, I mean, you know, the, the greatest 
uh, cricketer that I have ever had the pleasure to see play cricket. I mm. mean, he was, you know, he was something magnificent. You know, we when he came on to uh, bowl, there was something that happened that I still to this day don't see with anybody else. Um, but also the great thing was that he was incredibly flawed. You know, mm. he, he, he smoked and he, you know, he, you know, slept around and he, you know, consorted with bookies and he, you know, stayed up late and he did all these things. He tested our, you know, patience with him so many times, you know. Um, you know, he was fat and skinny and he had blonde hair and a mullet and, he, you know, he took baked beans to India. I mean, like, there was just there was just so much about Shane Warne yep. that just kept giving. Uh, but, you know, it was kind of counterbalanced by the fact that he was, you know, the, the greatest, you know, of all time. Whereas the other two that you mentioned, you know, Glenn Maxwell and, you know, and Watto, there's a certain sadness to the comedy around them in that, yes... There is a ridiculousness to, you know, both the way they played the game and their careers, you know, that they've always promised, you know, absolute greatness, but those moments of absolute greatness have been counterbalanced by moments of absolute... See, I think that the great... I guess if I'm thinking about it, is that the great thing about Warney was that most of his great stuff was on the field mm. and most of his terrible stuff was off the right. field. Whereas with Watto and with Glenn Maxwell, they're both on the field. Right. You know, like they can, their great heights and their great lows, the things that we consider them both, were both things they do mm. in a game of cricket. You mm. know, like. And with Warner, I think what you mentioned there, Will, the, the stuff off the field, it all happened before social media. I, I don't know how you interpret this, but when you were writing about him as a subject where he wasn't so exposed and you didn't get to absorb his every utterance through Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is, that it made for a more interesting subject. Now, all the gaps have been filled in with him almost as though there's no mistake with warning anymore yeah i agree with that like the reality is a little bit sadder than the like what you imagined it was like when you hear about i mean i read his book and you know he describes the night you know of the play but the famous playboy underpants yeah incident hmm. and you're like it's such a legendary moment in sport but once you actually just see it written down you know in black and white you're just like uh, it's, it's really just a bit uh, underwhelming, isn't it? It's a, it's a bit gross now. Yeah, I also love the idea that you said that in some way, yeah, that yeah, he was, uh, I mean, he was pretty exposed. I mean, that's the one thing about Warren yeah. is he was, he, he, I guess what, what was uh, probably the thing that worked about him as well is he's unapologetic in who he is. Like the one thing he's always been in his life is 100%, you know, Shane Warren, for, for good or for ill. Mm-hmm. He kind of, he is what you see on the label. There are so many people in life who, you know, publicly are one thing and then privately are something very different. Whereas like, you know, warning what you, what you see is what you get. You know, I guess this is a technology thing, isn't it? Because yes, he was so overexposed. We felt like we knew so much about Shane Warne. And for Jeff in my era, being Victorians, growing up in Melbourne, Shane Warne was the definitive cricketing hero for every one of my peers and friends and teammates and so on. And, and it'll always be that way. But it feels like in, in the decade since he retired, or more acutely, perhaps the decade where social media has been such a, a massive part of him that I'm not sure whether that would necessarily have been the same. Now, obviously, his cricket would stand him a part of anyone that will forever but I would have forgiven Warney for anything when he was playing wasn't part of it because every time he got into a scandal he 
came back and played really well. Like, I mean, let's be honest. Imagine how many scandals he would have got in if social media was around. Mm. He might have taken 2,000 wickets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure, he would have got in 150 scandals, but he would have taken yeah. 2,000 wickets. <laughs> So you look at a photo of him earlier on, you know, when he's 20 or so, and he's just this sort of chubby-faced little kid. He's quite sweet. He's insecure and he's quite innocent in a way. And you read Gideon Haig's book about interviewing him early on, and, and he's just really keen to be liked and be likable. It seems like the version of him that we get is quite a jaded personality, and it feels like public sentiment has shifted. Like, there was so much love, just love. But then now it, there's a much more satirical edge. Well, I think that, like, probably he's... Not, well, I mean, everybody does it differently, but if you look at the post-media career of Shane Warne, the, the, sorry, the media career of Shane Warne post-cricket versus, say, Ricky Ponting, mm. right? Ricky Ponting has shown that you can just talk about cricket in an intelligent way and people will love you as a commentator. Yep. You don't actually have to be... You don't have to have huge, hard opinions about things. Mm. Warney's gone a bit more the... You know, the Ian Chappell, you know, sort of route. Whereas, mm. like, you know, Ponting has shown that you can just go on and speak about cricket in an intelligent way and people will respond to it. And I think Warney has a brain equally, you know, as intelligent as Ricky Ponting when it comes to thinking about the game. But he's yep. fallen a little bit into that that shock jock sort of thing of, like, I have to have a controversial I'm opinion. I'm an entertainer or, rather yeah, than a commentator. Yeah, exactly. And and for me, like, the most entertaining thing of all is talking intelligently about the game. There are pl- plenty of people who can be clowns and there are plenty of people who can have huge, hard opinions. But you're Shane Warne. Why don't you just, like, talk to us about cricket and tell us about your thinking? I mean, I can listen to Ricky Ponting, like talk about cricket all day long and commentate every single game and you would learn something about the game of cricket listening to his commentary and there are moments in Shane Warne's commentary where that is absolutely the case as well because he has one of the great cricket brains of all time but unfortunately he then gets I think caught in these you know modes between sort of being overly entertaining or overly critical is it something you'd like to do one day? You know, formally be involved in reflecting on the game, whether that's, you know, uh, I know you've been heavily involved in football when it comes to podcasting and, and so on, but uh, finding your platform to talk about cricket on a more consistent basis? I, I like having something in my life now. And, I, you know, I, I imagine you guys, there's something really beautiful about being able to combine your passion with your work, but there is also something that, it takes away from your passion a little Mm. bit the minute it becomes Mm. your job. And I've even found that with our football podcast is that, you know, you suddenly, you know, you feel like you have to watch the games and you have to have an opinion on things. And so you've gone from, you know, being a, just an enjoyer of something Mm. to being, you know, sort of contractually obliged to, you know, you know, take part in it. And the thing I love about cricket and, you know, is that I am nothing but, a fan of it like no one's coming to me for expert commentary on it uh no one's expecting that i will tweet on every game that's going around like i tend to tweet about cricket if i'm at home by myself one day and i get to watch the cricket Mm -hmm. i'll send some tweets about the cricket but i don't feel like then the next day i have to get online and do a whole bunch of tweets about the cricket like you know i still get to enjoy you know the cricket and there are very few things in my life now that i haven't made into some sort of job so i think cricket has <laughs> one of those rare you know spots in my life where i mean even to a certain extent where i was like i've been talking to you guys today and i was like 
oh, I probably probably should have been funnier. I was like, <laughs> I'm a comedian. I probably should have been a bit funnier. I got a bit serious about cricket. But the great thing is that I don't really have any responsibility to be that. You know, if I yep. was doing a podcast about cricket, I'd be like, yeah, I probably should be entertaining and, mm. and funny. But I'm just a fan of cricket. Mm. I just love it. You know, I'm, I'm passionate about it, but I'm just a fan, you know. I'm not part of the, the cricket industry. I don't have to be nice to anybody. I don't have to worry that if I say all those things about Sean Marsh that I'm going to be at a game and then suddenly I'm going to run into Sean Marsh at something and discover he's actually a really lovely guy and that's why everybody <laughs> loves him it. and now I'm going to feel bad about all those jokes that I've made about him. It's a pretty fair point. I mean, Jeff and I have joked about this before that uh, going into cricket as a profession and doing this, you know, 320 days a year where we're on the clock in one form or another, it has changed the way that I feel about cricket. I mean, have you ever had that same experience when it comes to stand-up comedy and, and generally your profession that it does become harder to love it for what it is because there is a, an imperative that you make a quit out of it? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, you know, people say, and it's one of the great you know, sayings, you know, find something you love to do and, you know, you'll never work a day in your life. But there is also the flip side to that, which is like find something that you love to do and make it your job and you'll never have a day off in the rest of your life because, <laughs> you know, you don't. You don't have that downtime anymore. In fact, you've mm. made the thing that was meant to be your downtime into your job. And even if you have the best job in the entire world, like then there are still days where you don't want to be at work. There are still aspects of the job that are, you know, draining and that takes away from the pure appreciation and joy of what it is that you you do like i'm sure that you know people who review you know music um you know they think oh this is the greatest job in the world i'll go to all of these concerts and i'll have a really great time but when you're at the concert you can't just be singing along to your favorite song and then going to a bar and you know getting a couple of beers and then wandering back for another song no you've got to be down the front with your notebook and evaluating you know what songs they're playing and whether the sound's good and these sort of things which then takes you into a different place it takes you from fan Mm. into you know being at work so yeah absolutely that's the case i mean even when i go and see comedy and i'm still a fan of comedy but when your brain is so used to you know analyzing for your own work you can't help but sit in the audience and even if you're not thinking about it your brain is going oh i see what they're doing here and Mm -hmm. your brain's making those calculations and it's doing it regardless so i think that making something your job can often i think there's something very important and 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 to be admired about going, no, no, this is just my hobby. This is just for fun for me. You know, this has no value in my life. It's not what I do. It's just for me. It's just for my enjoyment. And and to me, probably more than anything else in my life, that is what cricket is, you know. And I feel no pressure to be a completist, you know. Like, I mean, if it were my job or if I was doing, I'd be like, oh, great. I'm going to have to watch every you know, match in the BBL. Right? Yep. You know, like the nine and a half months that the BBL went this year. I'm going to have to sit down at seven o'clock every night. I'm going to have to ruin my relationship because I have to watch, you know, the hurricane. It's going to be like the end like of the, the clockwork orange. For the ninth time, you With know. Your eyes strapped open. <laughs> right, right. Like, whereas, like, you know, people this year were like, the BBL season was too long. I'm like, well, it wasn't for me because I catch like a game a week. Mm. So for me, it was about the same length as it was last season. I watched about the same amount of games. I dipped in and out whenever. I felt like it you know I had times during the test this year where I had other stuff on on different days so you know out of the four or five days of the test I might sit down and watch three days or three and a half days because you can do that because it's it's your hobby not your your job 
Speaking of cricket going for a very long time, maybe my favourite line that you compiled in 2015, you said the reason that the World Cup is taking so long is that all of the New Zealand matches were directed by Peter Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) I I forget a lot of what I've said, so it's impolite that I've laughed a couple of times at my own tweets. They're they're new jokes to you, they're coming back to you. But the World Cup does go for a bloody long time and it makes the big bash seem trivial. Are you going to get invested in it this year, do you think? Are you going to sit down and watch a lot of it or will it just pass you by with your occasional dip in as per the BBL? I would imagine the timing will be really good for... So essentially, the more... The timing of... When I'm watching a lot of cricket is if it's at times when my partner will be doing something else or will be asleep. And the timing of the World Cup might work out very well for me. Uh, We're recording this today in in my office out the back of the house. And um, yeah, I I think there'll be a lot of me getting up yeah, getting up early, coming out here and uh, watching a game or two of, of cricket, um, you know, while she sleeps. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's my version of having an affair. That's my, my version is sneaking out the back with the dogs and laying on the couch and watching like a, a B-group World Cup round match. But yeah, no, I'll watch as much of that as possible because I love a World Cup because for me, your World Cup is all your storylines are contained in one period of mm. time. So what I love about it is, is you get to know all the characters and there's something on the line that is important and then you see, you know, I mean, I, my, you know, I love to watch, I w- I've watched a lot of the Women's uh, World Cup recently and I loved it because other than the Australians, I, I, I wasn't really across, mm. you know, uh, a lot of the other teams and their players, but you have this opportunity in a short period of time yeah. to get to know them and get to see them a few times in a row and you know kind of get an appreciation of their games and the way that they play and and uh, I, yeah I, I love a world cup for that reason and you may have to make that confession at some point you know i've, I've been seeing someone else it's muhammad nabi yeah. afghan, <laughs> afghan all-rounder <laughs> he just bowls tidy off spin in a way that you never can i'm sorry <laughs> Another post you wrote, the Australian dressing room always has 12 boxes, 11 for protecting genitals, one for suggestions. <laughs> if, if you had to give Australian cricket a suggestion or two at the moment in the place it finds itself, what would that be? Well, I mean, what I would like to see is I think that we actually have a problem with the way the season is, is scheduled. I will say that. Like, I think the big gap we have between domestic long-form cricket, when they take all that time off for the for the big bash i don't like that and it's weird now that we're back into you know the sheffield shield at a time when everybody's sort of thinking about you know football and Mm. and stuff like that so for me that is is really weird um yeah warner at three for the ashes that's my that's my big push um that's the news line out of this interview yeah exactly anderson backs warner at first drop yeah um i would like uh to what would i like to see for australian Cricket, I think that different. I, I'm a very big believer in the different teams for for different versions of the game. Mm-hmm. Like you know, and that we should like you know the fact that Sean Marsh keeps making hundreds in you know one day cricket should be good. And the lesson we should learn out of that is Sean Marsh is very good at one day cricket, and <laughs> Sean Marsh could should continue to play one day cricket the lesson we shouldn't learn out of that is we should give him another go at playing test match cricket for Australia I like the idea of of us having specialist teams for specialist occasions and I'm going to take that a step further which is I believe 
that we should have specialist teams. So the idea that the famous Matty Hayden India tour, hmm. the the kind of legend hmm. of that is that he got the pitch put in and he practiced on the yeah the same pitch you know, all this sort of time. I believe that our solution to winning overseas is that we constantly have two teams in rotation, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, you've got a team that's preparing to go and play. In, in, so you've got a team that can play in Australia because we've got a whole bunch of players who mm. have great Australian records but are terrible overseas. So the summer's in Australia. That's our Australian team, people with great home records. But in, meanwhile, we've got our Ashes team off in simulated English conditions mm-hmm. playing. Not We haven't just got the Duke balls. We've got English-style pitches. Yep. You know, we've got people in the crowd with English accents. Yelling at them. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're being served, yep. you know, tea for <laughs> breakfast. Warm you know, beer. Exactly. And- sausages and eggs. Like, I mean, really, you know, getting them used to the conditions that they're going to face. Just existing in a climate of political chaos and catastrophe, heading right. towards a massive economic collapse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just to get them in the vibe of yeah. it. And we have these teams these specialist teams ready to go around the world. So that would be me. I think more specialisation is what mm. I would like to see. It's going to be a long wait for the Zimbabwe team, though. The yep. Zimbabwe specialists <laughs> will be... have <laughs> just been at the Harare Sports Club for 16 years <laughs> just waiting for the day. <laughs> uh, I think that's probably a pretty good place to taper off. Will Anderson, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Thanks oh, for thanks joining for the final me. word. I appreciate it. Well, thanks again to Will Anderson for being such a generous guest, gave it, giving us plenty of his time. Uh, thanks to Jay Mueller and Bad Producer Productions for getting his show on the road each week. Thanks to Kookaburra Cricket. If it ain't Cooker, it ain't Cricket. Uh, this has been The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Thanks for your company, and we can't wait to do it all again next week. I had to go about-